Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Despite all the predictions of doom, the American economy has achieved a macro miracle. Inflation has been tamed without the insidious side effects of higher unemployment or a recession. I want to know how the Fed pulled off a soft landing and whether we can hope for the same in the UK. And in today's dumb question of the week, why do economists always get it wrong? All right, let's get into it. I don't know if you watched the last press conference with Jerome Powell following the Federal Reserve meeting, but actually I do. You definitely watched it. (laughs) (laughs) Jerome Powell seemed to have a bit of a mood shift, didn't he? He's looking pretty upbeat these days. Why is that, Roman? Yeah, he was basically doing uh, a little bit of a, an air punch by the end of the meeting. And he was kind of hinting that they achieved what many people thought was impossible at the end of last year, which is to bring down inflation without crashing the US economy. And by crashing the US economy, what we're really talking about here is surging unemployment. A US recession is essentially the same thing as a surge in unemployment. So that's what people mean by a soft landing then. It's inflation coming back down to 2% without widespread economic pain. Yeah, or at least minimal pain, I'd say. And has there ever been a soft landing before? Or is this a real rabbit from the hat moment? Ish, although I'd say this is probably one of the softest. Given the size and the rapid growth of inflation, the spike that we saw, I think it's pretty remarkable. Or maybe not. Maybe that's part of the reason why it was so easy to fix. Certainly in the mid-1990s, this is when Alan Greenspan was the Federal Reserve Chair, There was a very sharp increase in interest rates. I remember it at the time. And there was worry that there was going to be a recession then, but it didn't really get too bad at all. When you look at the historic record, that seems to be the only time when the Fed arguably delivered a soft landing. But inflation didn't get up to the 9% plus it got up to this time. No, I mean, it was nothing like the scale of the shock we got this time around. But of course, it didn't have such a big trigger, which is switching off the economy and switching it back on again. But it wasn't the case that there were no casualties at all. For example, there's a classic story about Orange County going bankrupt at the time, and there's a brilliant story behind that. Do you know about Robert Citron? No. He sounds like he should be in Orange County, though. (laughs) It's just you couldn't make it up, could you? But he was the treasurer tax collector of Orange County in California, which is kind of the equivalent of Essex in the UK. As in it's the bit just outside the major city? Kind of, but also in terms of the politics, I'd say it's kind of equivalent. But what he did is he took the investments of Orange County, which is a pretty prosperous county, a very large one, and he levered them up using repo. And guess what happened? When interest rates went up, it kind of blew up the fund and he went to prison. What, and the whole county went bankrupt? There was a bankruptcy, yeah. Now, he did have a really reliable means of forecasting what would happen with interest rates. Can you guess what it was? Tea leaves? Close. Very close. He had a mail-order astrologer and a psychic who made his interest rate predictions. But the question is, of course, whether they'd be better than an economist. Oh, what do you think? (laughs) Probably not. But still, you know, it's a pretty low bar. And that wasn't the only sort of hiccup, was it, in that supposedly soft landing? I know that some emerging market countries also go into trouble. For example, Mexico sort of bailout from the IMF. And it's often the case when the US raises interest rates, it causes outflows from emerging markets and a lot of hot money flows out of their economy. And that often causes a tightening of 
credit conditions. And sometimes that triggers an EM currency crisis, which is what happened then. Because this episode we've just been through, even though it looks like, hopefully, the Fed is delivering a soft landing, it's not been painless. We had the minor banking crisis back in March in the US. And for anyone who's remortgaging or corporates rolling their debt, try arguing with them that it's pain-free. Yeah, if you had to refinance, either as a household or as a company, it's been incredibly painful. But they needed to get inflation down. Yeah, so obviously that's one of the side effects of tighter monetary policy, which is that it is going to be more expensive to fund your business and fund your household if you do rely on debt. That's how it works. So why were so many economists forecasting that we get a hard landing, as in what the Fed was going to do by jacking up interest rates so fast from zero effectively to 5.25% in, what was it, 18 months or something? Well, almost every model that you use historically, which is trained on historic data, was telling you the same thing, which is that typically what happens is the yield curve inverts. And not long afterwards, usually six months, nine months later, you get a recession because that's what the Fed does. It triggers a slowdown in the economy, which usually overshoots. And then you'll end up with something which is really unpleasant, which is higher unemployment and the US will enter recession. But those historic conditions, which is always what you condition one of these models on, simply didn't apply to this episode of inflation. Everyone was pointing back to the 1970s, weren't they? Where you got rampant inflation and that was only really cured when Paul Volcker came in at the Fed, pushed interest rates right up into double digits, triggered a recession and squeezed inflation out of the system. And they thought, that's probably what's going to have to happen again. And it looked like that was the case because inflation was rising so rapidly and it rose to such a high rate that it did look like the 70s. And the reasons behind it were also similar in some ways with the energy shock that we got. And of course, that was similar to the 1970s. What was different this time around, I think, one of the things was that you don't automatically have wage increases. That was written into a lot of the contracts, work contracts at the time, because there was a lot more unionised labour. So there was a bit of a price wage spiral that time around, which didn't happen this time. And I guess there's also been other balancing forces. So we had the energy spike, didn't we? Particularly after the invasion of Ukraine. But the difference now versus the 70s is the US is a massive oil producer these days and also imports a lot of things from China, a lot of goods. And China's experiencing deflation and is kind of exporting its deflation to the US, if you like. The goods are getting cheaper. That's one of the narratives. I'm not sure that they export enough to the US in order to cause deflation as a whole or to have a significant drag on inflation in the US. But that's certainly one of the factors. But would you say we have got a soft landing this time? Is it in the bag? Because Jerome Powell said it's far too early to declare victory. That's what he said in his last speech. Yeah, as he quietly air punched. So look, <laughs> he has to be a bit cagey about it because I think it's really hard to see what's just around the corner economically, particularly at the moment, because what is pretty clear is that the economy is not reacting as it has in the past. That's why the models are failing. If there was a similar analogy in the past, then the models would have picked it up, but they don't. So I think something is wrong with the macro models. This is a new situation, a new set of conditions, a set of conditions that we haven't seen before, or at least not in living memory. Maybe if we could go back to 1918 and see the previous flu epidemic, 
then we might get an idea about what's going on. We'd have a better idea. But of course, things were very different then. And there wasn't such a good measurement for a lot of the macroeconomic variables. So I'm not sure that would be possible. But on the face of it, it's looking positive right now, isn't it? Consumer price inflation peaked at over 9% in the middle of 2022. That's now down to 3.1% as of November. GDP growth has been incredible. So real GDP growth in the third quarter was 5.2%, which by any measure is incredibly fast GDP growth for a developed country. And the jobs market is still unbelievably tight with unemployment near multi-decade lows. This is looking a lot like a soft landing. Probably the best indicator of recession in the United States is the SAM indicator by Claudia SAM. And I was watching her Twitter account and she was talking about this. She was watching the employment data and the latest print was pretty strong. So she said, no, there's absolutely no sign of a recession right now. Because one of the weird things about recession is you don't realise it's a recession until the NBER committee in the United States says it was a recession. And that usually takes a while. What's particularly weird is that consumer sentiment in the US has been pretty poor. And a lot of people feel that the economy is in recession, even though there's no sign of that in the data. Yeah, I think it's also a political thing. It depends on whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. If you look at what Republicans are saying, they're very unhappy with the economy, whereas Democrats are fairly happy with what's going on. Kyla Scanlon called it a vibe session, and I think that's the best terminology to have come out of this whole inflation debacle. And that's a pretty good way of characterising it, because it's not really there in the hard data. People aren't really seeing the numbers get worse, but people psychologically feel as if they're worse off, because they're probably anchoring on prices which they had about a year ago. And of course, if inflation comes down, the rate of inflation, that doesn't mean that prices are lower. We're still living with considerably higher prices than we had before the inflation spike started. So perhaps that's part of the reason behind the unhappiness. Yeah. Real wage growth, I think, is positive. So in theory, people should start feeling better off and that should feed through into the data. But I get your point that even if your salary's gone up a bit, it's still not great to be paying like 20% more for the good than you paid two years ago. You still, psychologically in the shops, you go, I can't believe that's the price of milk these days. (laughs) Or eggs. It is shocking. But with real wages increasing, and particularly with gasoline prices in the US falling, I suspect we will start to see an improvement in sentiment, especially if rate cuts do come next year. Well, there are two different things here, right? One is the sentiment, which people report on sentiment surveys. And then there's actually what people do. And what are Americans doing? They're getting into their SUVs and going to the mall. You know, they haven't stopped shopping for all that rubbish, which people tend to buy all the time. So You say the mall, <laughs> but I think they're shopping online when you look at the stats. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but you're right. People typically, when asked about the economy, say, yeah, it's really bad right now. And then they're asked about, well, how are your own finances doing? How are your own prospects? They're like, I'm doing really well right now. (laughs) Which is weird. There's this weird disconnect. I mean, the prices of some goods have gone up a lot. So things like white goods, things like automobiles, perhaps. But certainly for the kind of everyday purchases and for little treats, for that kind of thing, there's very brisk activity, retail activity in the US. You don't get GDP growing at more than 5% without people spending money. Exactly. 
And that's real GDP growth, remember, because people always go, oh, yeah, but it's due to inflation. Well, it's not in this case. Yeah, nominal GDP, if you plot that, it's kind of astonishing. Yeah. It looks like one of those meme stocks. It's an axis breaker. But it's coming down now, of course. I suspect we will see GDP slow, but whether it goes below zero, we'll have to see. I doubt it. Yeah, it's just looking very unlikely at the moment. I mean, it's shocking how quickly analysts have had to revise their forecasts. So if you go back to mid-2022, it's like 18 months ago, when inflation was right at its peak, most surveys of economists found that three quarters of them thought a recession would be here by the end of 2023, so where we are now. Obviously, we haven't had a recession, quite the opposite. But now, over the next 12 months, three quarters of economists seem convinced we won't get a recession. So it's almost a complete turnaround from where we were 18 months ago. And if you look at something like GDP now, this is a model from the Atlanta Fed, which takes all of the available data that comes in the form of surveys or other macroeconomic data, and it feeds this into a kind of real-time model. That's currently expecting growth of about 2.7% in the fourth quarter of 2023. Yeah, this is the model which was really ahead of the game in predicting the 5% GDP growth. And everyone's like, oh, GDP now is just broken. There's no way we're going to get this. And then, boom, it came out in the actual data. So it's kind of proving itself through this um, uncertain time. And I think it is useful from that point of view. It doesn't really have political bias. It doesn't have any of that. It just takes the numbers as they come in and tells you what that usually means. So what's GDP now actually looking at? Well, it's a huge number of factors, things like consumer spending, non-residential fixed investment, residential investment, change in private inventories, net exports, government spending, all of those feed into it. All right, all right. It's a load of economic geeks looking at loads of numbers. (laughs) But they seem to be doing a good job. But it's funny when you start reading what economists are saying at the moment, they definitely don't agree on how a soft landing has been achieved and the role that the Fed played here. Yeah, I mean, I always say about economists, and as a physicist, perhaps I'm a bit too arrogant about predicting things accurately, but I always say that it's one of the few disciplines that can't forecast the past. Yeah, this time they certainly failed to forecast the future and now are arguing about forecasting the past. And Noah Smith, who's an economist and commentator, published an interesting article, which was called How Did the US Achieve a Soft Landing? And he outlines four different theories which are kind of competing with each other at the moment. But it's so funny because I read the article and I just thought, well, it's obviously theory number three. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's go through them then. You just put all the economists in their places. Okay, so theory one, he's dubbed long transitory. Because you'll remember back in, what was it, 2021, when inflation started creeping up, a lot of people, the Fed included, were talking about this being transitory and something that would just pass through the system without too much monetary policy action needed to correct it. The Fed quickly stopped using the word transitory when it proved it was sticking around. (laughs) But maybe transitory just took a little longer to work itself through than people thought. So the basic story here is that during the pandemic, we had lots of snarled supply chains. And then we got a really rapid rise in oil prices due to Putin's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. And then the supply chain pressures started to ease in 2022, and then everything's back to normal in 2023. So essentially a supply shock. Yeah, this is basically the theory that the market fixed it, right? There was a supply shock and markets do what they do. The prices going up meant there was an incentive to fix the problem. 
and businesses came in and unsnarled the supply chains and the Fed didn't really do much. Well, didn't have to do anything if this theory is true. They could have just sat on their hands and just said, fine, we'll just let it pass through the system. It would have been an interesting counterfactual, wouldn't it, if the Fed had just, I don't know, maybe raised rates to 1.5% or something and said, well, it's a supply problem, deal with it. (laughs) I mean, it wouldn't have made people happy, but would it have worked? We'll never know. That would have been awesome. But there would have been huge issues, I think, with the Fed not raising rates aggressively. If this theory was true, like you say, it's basically saying the Fed is irrelevant, at least on the supply side. And this is all supply driven, is what this theory says. Which is clearly not true. I mean, if the Fed raised interest rates to 30%, you know, you know that would be a problem. OK, there's no question. OK, so you're dismissing theory one of transitory. I think so. But I think calling it transitory is completely separate from that theory. I think that's just a supply shock theory. Anyway, let's move on to theory two. So theory two is around business cycles. And I believe the claim here is that this inflation spike we got was not really due to supply problems, but more the fact that the Fed printed so much money in response to COVID and the government gave so much stimulus out to the population that demand was massively inflated and people bid up the prices on limited goods. So effectively, all of these government checks pumped up inflation. That was the gist of it. Yeah, the theory is that the business cycle is the business cycle. The economy is going to make as much stuff as it makes. And if you give people loads of money, you're going to cause inflation. The implication being that the Fed made a big error and kind of overshot and overreacted to COVID. And again, what they could have done is just nothing. And this would have resolved itself if this theory is true. Go back to March 2020, though, and... The Fed sitting on its hands would have been pretty scary. Oh, yeah, when markets were in free fall and the treasury market froze up and people were really panicking, the Fed would have had to do something. But it wasn't monetary policy necessarily that would have fixed it. It was the asset purchases, buying HYG, the ETF, the junk bond ETF, buying US treasuries, bloating its balance sheet up to $9 trillion. That's a separate issue from monetary policy. Undoubtedly, The government's fiscal stimulus did cause a positive demand shock, though. It did boost consumption. You see that clearly in the demand for goods during COVID. But it is a kind of weird theory that aggregate supply moves around on its own. I think that's pretty odd, that there's some kind of hidden rhythm to the economy and it's kind of producing what it produces and there's not much you can do about it. Yeah, that would seem to just be on the face of it wrong to me. And if the government really screws up supply deliberately, then again, you know, that's going to cause a huge problem in the economy. But we did see this argument play out in your YouTube comments, right, throughout the last three years. People going, oh, it's a supply shock. It's going to be fine. And the rest of people going, oh, my God, they printed so much money. Everyone's got too much money, right? This was a genuine (laughs) argument everyone was having. And economists are having it too, I think. Yeah. And I can't imagine it's going to resolve itself soon. I expect to see these comments on my YouTube videos for the rest of my life. The third theory is kind of a hybrid combination of this two. It's acknowledging we got a big negative supply shock, obviously, and we got a positive demand shock with all the money that was put into people's pockets. And therefore, we made a kind of policy choice to come through this episode with higher inflation rather than a massive slump in growth. And this is the one I thought was very clearly right, because it kind of explains all the numbers and pretty much exactly what happened. But it's less ideologically satisfying, I think, for people, isn't it? Because 
monetarists want to say it's all down to the money supply <laughs> and people who spent the time since 2008 saying we can print money and it doesn't matter don't want to acknowledge that in this case it did matter. But there are lots of moving parts to this theory so I suppose you could fit almost anything with it but the idea is that you had a big stimulus, lots of money being printed in 2020-2021 and then that finished in early 2022 then we had the supply chain shock and oil prices rose. And then this ended in late 2022. And then in 2023, both of them went back to normal. And certainly if you listen to Jerome Powell, this is the narrative he tells as to why inflation's coming down. The timeline does seem to stack up. I mean, the upshot of this, I guess, would be that maybe the Fed made a mistake early on in the pandemic and did print a bit too much money or at least kept rates low for a bit too long. And we won't really know until long after this episode's passed whether that's the case. And the worry now is that they're going to keep rates high for too long and kind of crush the recovery and maybe even create a recession later on. But according to Powell, they are very wary of that now. But the reason why I say this one was kind of obvious is that that's what happened. I mean, it was very clear that supply chains got snarled up during the period when we were coming out of the lockdowns. And there was a big demand for stuff. That was very clear if you look at the retail sales data and just our own experience. And I think it's also true that people clearly had excess savings and a little bit extra cash in their pockets. And we saw that also in asset markets, didn't we? The whole meme stock phenomenon of people plowing money into the stock market willy-nilly was because they had more money than they knew what to do with, I think. <laughs> and they were bored. And the bored apes. You know, that's an example of <laughs> too much money in people's pockets, pretty clearly. So maybe the Fed did a little too much on their way in, but then you've got to think about the balance of risk. Was it a risk of doing too much or was it a risk of doing too little? Because people always look back to 2008 and said the Fed did too little and the government did too little stimulus. So this time, maybe they went the other way and did too much, but perhaps we'd rather live in a world with inflation at 9% briefly than we would with a major recession. But I think looking back on this episode, people will look back at this experience and say, actually, what they did was spot on. We had monetary policy trying to calm things down. And then at the same time, what the government was doing was trying to stimulate the economy. So they did seem to be pulling in opposite directions, but the timing proved to be just right. It would be interesting to know if this was a computer game and you could kind of start over again, <laughs> if there was some kind of policy which would have got us through this without a recession, but without high inflation. I suspect not just because of what happens to supply chains and oil. Like, however you try and manipulate demand, how can you get that sort of micromanaged to the right amount not to see inflation pick up? I mean, certainly this theory would say the Fed did the right thing once inflation did go really high in terms of slamming on the brakes hard because we haven't seen a recession, right? But I love that quote from John von Neumann where he said, with four free parameters, I can fit an elephant with five, I can wiggle his trunk. So effectively, what he's saying is that the theory has got so many free parameters, you can fit anything, any experience, any kind of macroeconomic path could be fitted with these number of variables. And ideally, what you want from a really powerful theory is something which is parsimonious, a really simple model, which explains all the facts. But I think for this one, you really need to look at what actually happened. And it's pretty clear that it explains what happened based on the data we saw. But it's not memeable. 
Jay Powell stood in front of a money printing machine is a meme. <laughs> I love that meme. How can you meme nuance around supply and demand of fiscal and monetary policy and supply chains and energy? But I said there was four theories. We've only discussed three. And the fourth one that Noah Smith highlights is the magic of managing expectations. I think of this as a kind of Jedi mind trick version of the Fed, where all he has to do is kind of wave his hands, Jerome, and signal that he's going to do something. And then the market responds as if it has already happened or it will happen. So Powell pretends to be Paul Volcker and says, we're going to do everything that's necessary to get inflation down. We'll raise rates to 15% or whatever if we need to. Now, we never actually said that, but he kind of implied it, right? That he would go as hard and as far as needed. And then the market goes, well, bloody hell, he probably means it. We better, get we better stop buying so much stuff. <laughs> that phrase, whatever it takes, I think he did actually say that. Yeah, yeah. One of the things the Fed looks at is the five-year forward, five-year inflation rate, which is backed out of markets. It also looks at surveys of what businesses and people, individuals, normal people, think is going to happen to inflation, because those expectations drive what people actually do. And if the belief that inflation is going to stay high for a long period of time gets ingrained, and that was the worry, remember, if inflation stayed too high for too long, then they start to behave and factor in high inflation. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Wage demands increase. Companies are willing to pay more for goods and services because they just assume that's the new normal. And then you end up in this kind of spiral of higher prices. So though this kind of expectations thing might sound a bit like economic hocus pocus, what you're saying is the Fed actually does care about what people think it's going to do. And it does have real effects in terms of how consumers and I guess businesses behave. So maybe there's something to this. I guess the claim here would be that the Fed's communication was so good <laughs> that they managed to get inflation down without having to jack up rates to like 10% or something and get above that 9% inflation level, which they might otherwise have to have done. Yeah, Nick Timrouse, who's just amazing. He's one of the journalists for the Wall Street Journal. And he always sits in on these monetary policy meetings and he's written a brilliant book about monetary policy through the crisis period in the pandemic. But he asked some really quite cutting questions. He said to Powell this time around, he said, when interest rates were increasing, yields on bonds were increasing as market expectations did your job for you. What we see right now is yields falling on bonds and the market's doing your job for you again of easing policy. So effectively, you don't have to do anything. The market just does it for you. So this is another way of saying the same thing, this kind of expectations theory. How did Powell respond to that? It's quite a provocative question that you're a bit pointless, mate. Well, Powell kind of fluffed around it. He said, so this last year has been remarkable for the sort of seesaw thing back and forth we've had over the course of the year of markets moving away and moving back and that kind of thing. What I would just say is that we focus on what we have to do and how we need to use our tools to achieve our goals. And that's what we really focus on. Oh my God, that's classic Fed speak. He said nothing there. Genius. <laughs> takes a hell of a lot of training to say nothing. I know that for a fact. But one thing he did say is that it's too early to declare victory. So are there risks here? Or is that just him covering his arse in case, you know, some huge black swan event happens? Well, look, I think what he has to say is that they're driven by the data. They always say that. And if there was another inflation spike, they'd have to respond to it. There's no question. So I think he's just setting the groundwork for that and just allowing for the possibility there will be another inflation spike. 
But maybe it's also on the downside risk as well. Like maybe he's saying the soft landing isn't assured because monetary policy affects with a lag. Like a lot of people are going to have to roll their debt still. You know, if you look at the housing market in the US, transactions have completely dried up. Consumer spending could stall as people get scared. I wouldn't say a soft landing is guaranteed yet. No, you're right. I think he is kind of covering his ass there. But like you say, there's a lag and they don't really know whether there's going to be a crushing of the economy a few months away. But I think it's unlikely just looking at the data, we are starting to see things improve. So for example, talking about the housing market, if you look at housing starts, they've just surged upwards. And this is home builders in the United States creating new houses, breaking new ground. And they'll only do that if they think the market's about to turn around. And they're pretty good at reading these things, I assume. So we are starting to see signs of recovery and rates coming down for mortgages, that kind of thing. So, you know, maybe, maybe he didn't have to cover his arse quite as much. Do you think the market's got ahead of itself in expecting, what is it, like five or six rate cuts next year? Yeah, I mean, that's just silly. That seems quite a lot. That's one and a half percentage points. Yeah, almost every meeting. I think all meetings except for one, they expect a rate cut starting in March. Now, the Fed, I don't think is going to be quite as dovish as that. There will be a turnaround. They're forecasting three rate cuts over the course of next year. But probably that would happen towards the back end of the year. March, I think, is too soon. I can never quite work out from these market expectations whether they're the good kind of rate cut or the bad kind of rate cut. Because the good kind is inflation's, you know, down at 2%. We can move away from restrictive monetary policy. The bad kind is, wow, we're in recession. Let's start slashing rates. Well, this is the good kind, I think. It's pretty clear that it's the good kind. The market certainly thinks it's the good kind. If you just look at the market reaction to what the Fed said, and if you look at what the Fed's talking about, it's growth being too high and wage growth being too high and trying to cool things down. That's what they're trying to achieve. And now that inflation is starting to fall, restrictive policy isn't appropriate. So that's pretty much the Goldilocks case, the immaculate disinflation that people have talked about. And we have started to see signs that stocks and bonds are uncorrelating. As we record this at the end of December, I think we've just seen the first day where there was a major move in opposite directions. Stocks fell around 1.5%. Not crazy, but you know, a big move and bonds rallied. The hedging is returning, possibly. Which is reassuring. That's nature healing. (laughs) Yeah. It's been a long time when they've just been moving in the same direction. But that's exactly what you'd expect. When inflation falls, you'd expect them to decorrelate. So it is reassuring. Okay, last question. It's looking good in the US, but will the UK follow suit and get a soft landing as well? No. No? Why not? Well, if you look at the Bank of England forecasts, they're pretty bearish. They're showing that there's not going to be much growth at all. And those are empirically based. So those are based on speaking to their agents. It's based on macroeconomic data, which they've got. And if you look at NISA, for example, the National Institute for Economic and Social Research, similarly, they're expecting a long period with very little growth. Not a recession, not a deep recession by any means, just very stagnant for the UK economy. So do you think we won't get a soft landing because we'll fail to get inflation back to 2% or because in getting inflation down to 2% we'll push us to the verge of recession? You think the second one is it? Well, have you ever seen a swan trying to take off? 
Yes, there's a lot of flapping involved. There's a lot of flapping and a lot of paddling. And for a long time, nothing happened. So I think that's what it looks like for the UK economy. I think it's kind of like a swan takeoff or landing. What colour is that swan? Black. Now, a lot of us are just spectators when it comes to stories about the economy. We don't really understand what's going on. But if you did want to get a deeper understanding of macroeconomics and markets, then you can do that as part of our community. So if you do want to join us, just look at our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. Why do economists always get it wrong? Now, you've already started to land a few punches on economists today, Roman. But let's just get all this out in the open. Why do their forecasts never seem to match up with what happens? You said they can't even forecast the past. I think ultimately it's a problem about forecasting human behaviour. I used to work in the experimental psychology department in Oxford, and we created these neural network models and we tried to predict some aspects of human behaviour. And it's really hard. I think that's the problem. It's just a fundamentally difficult problem. Humans are unpredictable. But are we en masse? I'd have thought the sort of median or average moves in a predictable way. Maybe it's just a matter of computing power, but certainly if you've got a simple model, a parsimonious model, as John von Neumann put it, then it's not going to explain human behaviour. And when you say human behaviour, what are you talking about? Are you talking about what people are going to be spending their money on, how likely they are to move jobs, that kind of thing? Well, anything, in fact, you know, starting with human behaviour for really simple acts, like given a stimulus, what will someone do, an individual? And then you've also got, like you say, will it become more predictable if you're predicting things en masse? When I was a kid, I was reading these books about psychohistory, about Harry Seldon, and this was Isaac Asimov's foundation series, where he comes up with a theory of psychohistory where he can predict entire civilizations. And frighteningly, he predicts that galactic civilization is going to collapse. So he kind of works out how to nudge it to keep the period of chaos as short as possible. Forget galactic civilization. What about civilization on a little wet rock in the middle of the Atlantic? But that's so disappointing because we're just so far from any kind of Selden theory of psychohistory right now. And economics is still very much in its infancy, I think, from that point of view. I mean, putting all this human behaviour stuff to one side, I have a lot of sympathy with economists just because it seems like it must be an impossibly complex task to predict something like a national economy. Forget the global economy. You've got human behaviour, like you say, but then you've got government policy and who knows what they're going to do. Sometimes those (laughs) rabbits come out of the hat thick and fast. You've got events around the world and geopolitics. You've got technological changes, which sometimes come about quickly and then you don't know what the implications will be. And you've got, you know, black swans that just happen in nature, like a pandemic. And you think, oh, we've not had one of those since 1918 and the data doesn't look so good back then. Oh, yeah, no question. It's not easy. But we're just so far from being able to have some kind of coherent theory right now. It just seems insuperable at the moment. How much of it is a problem of the models and how much is it a problem of the data and the collection of the data? Well, maybe it's the fact that at the moment what economics is trying to do is to mimic physics and come up with a really simple mathematical formulation which will be like Newton's laws of behaviour. Maybe that's fundamentally misguided. Maybe the only way you can do this is to have an immensely complex model, which has trillions of parameters, where you can wiggle the trunk 
you have to be able to wiggle the trunk in order to explain what's going on. Maybe that's the problem. It shouldn't be parsimonious. It should be horrendously complex. A blooming, buzzing confusion. So maybe the dawn of the AI era and massive data processing will herald some new discoveries in economics? Maybe. Maybe that's the way to go. It just seems like what they're trying to do right now doesn't seem to be paying off. Or at least there's no simple theory which will be sufficiently complex to describe what is essentially a hugely complex system. I mean, their job's not made any easier, I think, by political intervention, is it? Like, all economic forecasts have political consequences because, you know, opposition politicians, for example, will come and say, look, we're going to have the slowest growth in the G7. (laughs) It's just terrible. And it's based on a forecast, right? So it's not easy to remain objective, I guess, even if you had a good model. But it's interesting if you look at weather prediction, it's a similar story about how that evolved. Initially, we just had very poor data. You couldn't even tell what the pressure was across the entire Earth's surface or what the sea temperature was across the Earth's surface. Now we've got much better data feeding into those models. And if you've got a physical model of how air moves, how energy flows through the atmosphere and through the surface of the Earth and through the ocean, you can do a pretty good job of simulating further out into the future. And forecasts are getting more accurate, but they're still far from perfect. But there we've got a combination of better data going in, more powerful models and better number crunching, and that has improved the models. So maybe it's a kind of similar story with economics. We need more real-time data, more granular data, and perhaps better number crunching, better models themselves. Maybe models that are so complex that a human can't grasp it. It has to be crafted by an AI, say. And it spits out a number and you think, do I dare trade on this number? <laughs> but then I guess that's the other point, isn't it? If economic forecasting became much more accurate and we knew with reliability, I don't know, what GDP was going to be, what inflation was going to be 12 months down the line, you wouldn't necessarily have an advantage in markets unless you had a secret model to yourself. Which I wouldn't discount. I think if anybody's going to do this, it'll be very well-funded hedge funds where they could get an edge and they wouldn't tell people about it. All you'd see would be very good returns. So maybe that's what we should be looking for. If the OBR spins off a successful hedge fund, I'd be surprised. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.